Welcome back to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So today, I think we wanted to talk about probably one of the most common but yet challenging parts of being a developer, at least in my experience, and that deals with um, unexpected complexity. When you start off working on something and you have a kind of an expectation of how complicated it's going to be to do, what it's going to look like, the effort involved, the time involved, and then you sit down, you open up Xcode, you start programming, and it turns out that it's a complete nightmare and it's going to be way more effort and way more work. And that experience happens so often that I think having a good uh, like process and mindset about dealing with it is one of the very important things of being able to ship software in a reasonable time and reasonable quality. And I think we both recently had an experience that kind of fell into that category. And so it was just kind of it's, this episode, I think, will be more of a case study style in terms of talking through our experiences. Um, and so I believe that is the experience that you had when you were working on the streaming engine for Overcast. Am I right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, streaming as a feature, you know, so Overcast is a podcast player and the the built-in Apple APIs for playing media uh, using AV Player, most of that stuff supports streaming out of the box. You don't really have to do much to, to enable it. Or I mean, depending on how how much you want your interface to behave, you don't necessarily have to do anything. <laughs> so it's it's very it's relatively easy to support streaming media just as well as you do locally played media if you're using AV Player. But one of Overcast's biggest selling features and, and one of the things that makes it most compelling, uh, b- both to me and to many of the users, is my custom audio engine uh, with, with a feature called Smart Speed, where Smart Speed dynamically adjusts the playback. And, and the way it works is it... Um, there's a there's a, a processing function that needs to read in the audio samples in the middle of the processing stream and then output possibly a different number of them if it's speeding up the sound so it might it might take in 500 samples and then the middle of it might be silence as it, as it detects silence so it might compress that down to 300 samples so you need you need the ability to inject into the processing stage a function that can read faster than it can output and that is not possible with av player there is no method there's no mechanism to do that that i have found uh, at all i'm really if anyone knows i'm really curious but uh i have looked many times every every time there's a new sdk i look i've asked apple engineers at, at wwdc and in labs and via email and it really does seem like it is just not possible with av player so the way I do this is uh, I actually just wrote the I basically wrote my own AV player. Uh, it's it's a, not a small task, and and it's I'm writing at the core audio and audio units levels, and uh, you know custom decoding of everything. And w- when you go lower level to enable this, uh, there the the easiest way to do it is something called the ext jeez uh, ext audio file API, and uh, that is that only works for. Uh, for locally stored files, it does not work for streams. There's a separate API, the Audio File Stream API, that is lower level than that, and that you can you can supply stream data to. You still have to manage the fetching of the stream yourself, and and a lot you have to manage a lot yourself. Uh, so the the job of streaming was to convert from that ext audio file API that only does local files to the lower level uh, audio file stream API. 
and also then build out all the UI behind it, build out the network fetcher, the, the actual streamer that can stream things, and of course make it all performant and responsible of data usage and memory and responsible of the CPU and also uh, handle a whole bunch of weird edge cases. And I, I knew it was going to be a big job going in, but I didn't quite realize how big, how many of those edge cases there would be, how tricky some of them would be to solve. And the biggest thing, like when we're talking about unexpected complexity, the biggest thing for me is unexpected time that it takes. You know, this is why our business is historically so bad at estimating time and ship dates. And when you're independent, I don't think we're any better at it. You know, I think in, in many ways it might be worse. Um, do you do you find that you are good at estimating time? I think the honest answer is that I've stopped estimating time or even trying to. Like, I, I have found that it doesn't actually help. For, like, I have this vague sense of like, I would like sometimes I have dead. The only deadline I usually have is a new device is being shipped or a new OS is being shipped. Like, there's something specific that like, if I want to be there on day one, of the iOS 9 launch, then I need to, you know, be in this, have it my app ready by the beginning of Jan- of September. Like, other than that, I try hard to not think too much about timelines because every time I've tried to do that, it never works. Like, that's, I mean, that's like, like the class, the most, like, universal experience of software engineering is you think it's going to take two weeks, it ends up taking four weeks. And that's just the reality of, like, you're all, like, because as you, I mean, I think it sounds a little bit like you have the same experience. Like you start off thinking, okay, maybe I can do this with these high level APIs. Like, you know, these things Apple's, you know, has put together, they're tried and true, whatever. And you start using it and it's like, okay, it does most of what I need, but it doesn't do this one critical thing. And you start being like, how critical is that? Well, it's probably pretty critical. And so you like, you step, you take your ne- next step down and then you take your next step down. And then before long, you're just like re-implementing all kinds of crazy stuff. And you have no way of knowing superficially what that's going to look, how many love stacks deep, how much rewriting and rebuilding of stuff you're going to need to end up doing to get what you're going to do. And so at the end, I was just like, I don't know. I'll just sort of hope for the best. And like other than for iOS 9 things, and when I do, for those, I just tend to say like how much, like I'll just work until I can't, I run out of time and just try and structure what I'm working on such that I can like, you know, not not be half finished have like half the things fully finished rather than all the things half finished but yeah estimating time is a complete nightmare i find yeah totally and and we're lucky that when we're when we're working for ourselves on our own product for the most part our time estimates aren't that important because for the most part you know only the users are demanding things if anybody uh, it's it's not like you know when you're when you're a consultant the pressure is much stronger on you to to meet the client's deadlines uh, or or when you're working for a company you know when you're working directly on on your employer's product uh, it's you know you have similar pressures from that uh, but and when you're a consultant you have you have a whole different aspect of it which is that you know the client is often directly paying you for the time that you are taking and that of course makes it even more complex uh, we are both lucky that we are not currently in that kind of role. Uh, but certainly, I would I would say from from just anecdotal evidence, it seems like the vast majority of iOS developers are involved in some kind of contract work. Uh, that that seems to be the biggest chunk of the of the iOS work that's out there. And uh, and time estimates are such a nightmare. There, I'm just we're both lucky that we can't really talk much about it because I I haven't done it in forever. And even when I did it, I didn't do very much of it. And you've it's been a while since you've done consulting as well, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I've the last time I did regular consulting was probably four or five years ago, something like that. Like I started out as a consultant. That was what I was doing initially, but it's been a long time since that made up any kind of significant portion of my business. And like I learned very quickly when I was doing consulting, though, to not commit to uh, time estimates in as much as I could, because you're always going to run into that. There's always some kind of complexity that you're not expecting. And if you don't plan for it, if you don't look at a problem and say like whatever you, it's like the old rule of like whatever you think it's going to take, like multiply it by three. <laughs> yeah, at least <laughs> you're, you're probably you're probably well off. But um, yeah, I try as best as I like the first rule. Like my, I've de- you definitely have that experience when you start off consulting, where you start to say like, oh, it's going to take such you know, oh, that'll only be like a week's worth of work, and you commit to the client to do that, and then it never ends up being a week's worth of work. It's just that's just the reality. I mean, even and I mean, with with streaming, I had so many problems with. I would I started it, I think three or four times, and I would get down a certain path or, or try to try to approach it in a certain way, and realize that it was just it was just never going to work. I was never going to be able to complete it in the way I was doing it, or it just was not working, or I had made too many mistakes, or I had made too many subtle bugs that I couldn't find at the very low levels, and so I would just scrap it and start over again. And when when you're at a big time crunch, uh, you don't usually have the opportunity to do that. And that can be a blessing and a curse. You know, if you do that too much, then you're wasting a whole bunch of time. And like, you, you know, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be exactly the perfect design, exactly what you want. And so if you if you have too many opportunities to cancel it and start over again, you're just going to kill tons of time. But if you don't have any opportunities to do that, uh, which is often the case when you're under time pressure from a client, say, I feel like it's hard to get good quality work. Because you really do learn a lot if you try to do something, then get a chance to throw it away and do it over again. Yeah, because I think one thing that I was my experience, like whenever I've encountered these kind of problems, like um, where I'm trying to deal with something that ends up being really much more complicated than I I think. Like I, I start off with a mental model for the problem that is straightforward. For example, the thing that I most recently ran into this with is I did a data syncing and merging algorithm for pedometer plus plus so like it takes the steps from your watch and your phone and make gives you a unified view of them in semi-real time which is at first i was like oh the mental model for this is great there's health kit right i can just use health kit and you can't because that's not how health kit works because it's not available on the watch in the way that shows you phone data so i very quickly discovered that like my original mental model was completely wrong and so then, like, what I, my process tends to be, I have this really straightforward mental model. It ends up not working. And then I end up going down these crazy paths of, like, incredibly complicated solutions. Like, all of these really, like, brittle and not really going to work solutions. Like, all kinds of crazy algorithms and merging schemes and way of throwing data back and forth. And you get to the end, and the times I'm most satisfied with my work, though, are when I end up, after all of that, with a simple solution again that is informed by all of those crazy paths down the down the way like you can learn the lesson and be like okay actually i don't need to do all these crazy things now that i understand the problem fully from like top to bottom i can say okay i don't need to worry about the data it all these in all these crazy ways i can just have make all these sort of nice simplifying assumptions about how it is because i've tested and verified that that those those work and then I can build like a solution that's almost as simple as the one I started off with wanting to build. And then now that actually deals with all that complexity. And like whenever I'm able to go through that process, it's like it starts simple, it gets horrifically messy, and then it gets simple again. I know I've, I'm doing it right. <laughs> yep. 
if ever it, I end up having to stop in that middle state where it's still really messy, like I know it's going to break. I know it's not going to work. Like I, it, it needs to be something that I could just describe to myself in just like a few, a few sentences or something's probably gone wrong. What kind of system did you end up with to address the the watch os 2 or watch kit to sync problem because you know as as you are very well aware and as as yeah. some of our audience might be um you know with what watch kit one apps were actually fairly straightforward and simple to make because they couldn't do that much and because they were running on the phone in the app sandbox in the same sandbox as the iphone app so that you could have a shared container and that and the iphone app and the watch app could literally be reading and writing from the same data. And and that's how I structured the Overcast watch app, which is I, I just move the the database file, the SQLite file, into the uh, the app container. And then the the communication between the watch app and the phone app is limited only to basically commands and status updates. And all the data, the watch app reads the data right off the, the database. And you know the phone just tells the watch when it has changed, and the watch reads it. So it's it's actually you know very quite simple in that way because there is no sync issue. If the watch can't reach the phone at the given moment, you just can't use the the Overcast app because it's just it's all it is is a remote control for the phone. Uh, so it's great with WatchOS two that that shared data container no longer quite exists the same way or at all really it doesn't exist at all yeah right so so with watch os 2 it is like it you are running two separate apps and you need to figure out how they're going to communicate with each other and there you know there's method there's methods to do the basics but there is no like automatic magical syncing that happens so you have to deal with how these things synchronize their data yourself that's one of the reasons why i haven't made an overcast uh, watch os 2 app uh, why I'm just keep I just keep having the the OS one app. At, first of all, because it works well enough. You know, Watch OS two improved WatchKit reliability quite a bit, uh, and so it, it, the app works well enough uh, for the most part. But also, you know, that it would be a major undertaking, as you as you discovered. You know, it's a major undertaking to all of a sudden tackle these two to all of a sudden take something that used to be a dumb remote and make it a full app with its own local storage and the problem of syncing both ways. And so, you know, if you if you take the phone away and you have the watch off by itself somewhere playing podcasts somehow, which is its own separate bag of hurt of like, you know, how capable that is right now in, in watchOS 2.0. But if you somehow do that, then you have to, when upon reconnection to the phone, you have to sync up that data again and resolve possible conflicts. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a much larger problem than it seems uh, upon first glance because while the APIs and everything are all very similar to what they were in watch in watchkill one uh the the data model is totally different and that's where most of the complexity i think would lie and i haven't yet decided that that's worth the investment apps for the apple watch are a whole a whole separate topic but uh i i have found generally that that i'm i'm very scared to tackle that this is one of the few times where i've spotted that that complexity ahead of time and and possibly wisely i don't know uh but possibly wisely uh, i'm avoiding it yeah because i think what i've ended up having to do in WatchOS 2 is essentially you have to build two completely independent can run on their own apps like the watch app has to be able to run entirely on its own without being able to like phone home to the to the phone and the phone app obviously needs to be able to run without the watch which isn't that much of of a stretch because that's what it does if you don't own a watch 
And then you have to do these funny things because the communication between the two is not reliable, both in terms of sometimes the watch is just physically not close enough to the phone in order to communicate. Um, and also sometimes the just the APIs and things like because I think it's because they're trying to do so much about power management and, you know, sometimes certain types of messages only go through if it's a good you know, it's a good thing from an energy perspective to be able to do like the radios are all turned up and fired up. So, hey, let's go ahead and send it right away. If they're not, maybe we'll wait and see if we are going to fire up the radio anyway for the next, you know, in the next second. If not, then maybe we'll do it. And so you have to build the system that is very, makes no assumptions about being able to talk to the other part, um, but still gives your user a consistent experience across both. And that's where, like, from for this project that I was working on, became like the really crazy thing because, like, a pedometer in some ways is very simple. Like, both at both devices have a motion processor on it that tells you how many steps they took in a particular time period. Like, that's all they do, and that's most of what the app is doing. Um, and so, I could run completely independently in terms of like, if you just if I could just showed you the watch's steps on the watch app and it just showed you the phone steps on the phone app, it'd be trivial. Um, but what I want to be able to do is obviously merge those together and say, like, which one is a better representation of what you're doing? And that became is where all the crazy complexity comes in, because I had a couple of things that I was like, so so many of like conflict resolution strategies don't really work in this scenario because I can't just do simple things like who updated most recently or things, because if if I can never, for example, make someone's step count go down, like, as I could, but conceptually i've always had that be like a rule for the app that if i ever even if it was like slightly in error if i ever showed you a step count like for example you hit your goal right like you got ten thousand steps confetti comes down from the screen hooray you did it i don't want you to then like sync up with your watch and say like oh actually now we think that you did nine thousand steps like, <laughs> like that would be terrible right you have to with- withdraw somebody's confetti yeah, like, I'm sorry, your confetti now goes back up to the top of the screen and... <laughs> Animate in reverse. It's like, it, it's, that, I think that'd be awful, right? Play like a sad trombone. Yeah. And so you have to, like, a lot of my syncing stuff is about saying, like, what's the biggest number of steps that you've shown the user for the particular time period that we're looking at? And syncing that up so that if I ever needed to show, sort of add extra steps, I have, I know what I need to add. Um, and also I need to do that, but like, it's not just like as simple as like who's shown more because the nature of these devices is like, which one of the, one of them is going to be showing you a better view of the user's activity probably at any one time. Like when I'm walking and pushing my daughter in a stroller, my phone in my pocket is going to be a better idea of how many steps I am. Cause my wrist is actually not moving. You know, it's attached to a stroller pushing it along. Um, but when my phone is like in a backpack or in my or like my wife runs into this a lot, like her phone will be in her purse, but her watch is on her wrist. So then her her watch is the better indicator of steps. And so it's like having to work out a scheme that is in real time dynamically working out which one based on the information we have, which we may or may not have all the time looking at the two data streams and merging them together. And like that is what you end up having to having to like that's the the, the minimum threshold for having this thing work is you have to have built a system that can do all that. And like that was the complexity for me that just became like, wow, this is a whole bigger thing than I would ever had imagined it would be. Yeah. And this and that's like one of the one of the things that makes these unexpected complexities uh so so frustrating or or so powerful is that again, they're unexpected. You have no idea when in a project you're going to hit something like this until you hit it. 
and and so like you know it, the more experience you get uh, as a developer uh, or just as a person who who lives in life uh, the, the more experience you get it it becomes a little bit more likely that you'll spot them ahead of time and and be able to possibly either avoid them or at least at least like budget for them but there's still always like stuff that you hit that's unexpected and it can totally throw a project off so like you know a, one thing that i do uh, to manage this is if I if I can tell something's going to be a big hairy mess, um, a lot of times I'll just cut the feature. I'll just you know I'll just avoid it. I'll say sorry, that's that's not worth doing. You know, with Overcast, I knew streaming was going to be a big deal, so for version one point I just didn't include it. Uh, I, I I couldn't ship it in time. I thought it was, I I estimated that it would be a better idea to ship the app without streaming uh, than to wait another six months to a year to to add streaming. That turned out to be correct. And in the case of, of my watch app now, uh, where I, I have the watchOS 1 app, the watchOS 2 app would be a ton of work and and would be different and might not be better. It, you know, it might, it might just be different. Um, I calculated so far that at the moment it isn't worth investing the time in that. And it, it might never be, I don't know. Uh, but certainly right now it isn't worth investing the time in that when I could instead be doing something with the same amount of time, I could instead be doing something like the Apple TV app or uh, or a major new feature, or a new even a brand new app if I wanted to. Like I, you have to really decide what's worth sinking all this time into. And sometimes it isn't the big hairy problem in front of you. Sometimes that problem is best off just staying unsolved. That feature might be better off staying unimplemented, and uh, or that app be that, that app might be better off not being made. And you might be better off spending that time in other ways because you can do a lot of low-hanging fruit in other parts of your app or as other apps in the same amount of time that you could tackle one big hairy problem in one app, and it might not be worth it. Our sponsor this week is Need. Go to neededition.com. Need is a curated retailer and lifestyle publication for the modern gentleman. Each week, Need launches new collections of exclusive clothing, literature, furniture, and more. Now, earlier this month, coinciding with the company's second birthday, Need launched an all-new site, expanding its availability into 43 countries in Europe, South America, Asia, and the Middle East. Shipping is flat rate for all international orders and free for all orders to the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And all returns are free, no matter where you are all over the world. This month, Need has launched three collections, including their holiday gift guide, featuring dozens of gift ideas for the holidays, many of which are under $40. Need is designed to be simple, straightforward, and uncomplicated. They include prepaid return labels with all shipments, they offer 24-7 support, and there aren't any subscriptions or stylists or other gimmicks to deal with. It's just a, a straightforward retailer. Simply come along to neededition.com, peruse the latest collections, and shop. Or don't, your choice. For listeners of this show, use coupon code RADAR for 20% off. That is coupon code RADAR at neededition.com for 20% off anything. Thank you so much to our friends at Need for sponsoring Under the Radar. Getting back to one thing that you just said that I think is probably a good place to be winding down this discussion is... I think the thing that I've learned most, like this is the like the battle-hardened wisdom of dealing with complexity, is making sure that I'm solving the the problem for the right reason. Um, I think most of us who get into software engineering or whatever you want to call what we do, um, we like solving problems, and the problems that we like solving most are the most difficult, interesting, tricky problems. 
Like that is, I think I'm in, you know, I'm in my element the most. I'm the most engaged. I'm the most excited about what I'm doing when I'm solving a really interesting problem. Like if I'm just writing boilerplate code, that's not nearly as um, exciting and something I want to really like wrap my arms around and get, you know, sort of get up in the morning to, to dive into. And so the thing that I, though, then always have to keep in the back of my mind when I find a problem like this, when I c- I'm working along on a task and I find that there's this big unexpected bump in complexity, like you were just saying, like sometimes you're just worth not doing it. Like the thing I know I've had to teach myself some discipline with is that I see when I see a problem like that, when I see an opportunity to really like go crazy spelunking, like dive deep down into some crazy low APIs and like build this crazy, cool, clever system. Make sure that I'm not just doing it uh, like because it would be intellectually fun and interesting. Like sometimes there's a place for that, but I've definitely caught myself sometimes just building things because I think it would be fun and it wouldn't actually make my customers happier. It wouldn't actually make my products better. It would just be fun for me to do. And I end up just going down, you know, these crazy rabbit holes and doing all these things. And often the reality is it isn't actually as fun as I thought it was going to be. Like it's fun for the first few out for the first few hours, first few days. And then you just like it's like you're in this point where like I always want to avoid where it's like I started working on my car and I've taken it completely apart. And like the I, I, then I, I come to discover like the fun part was taking it apart. The fun part is not putting it back together. And now I don't have a car anymore. Like, that's the part where I have to catch myself and be like, am I really doing this for the right reason? Is this complexity worth the effort? And having that kind of taking a step back from your work um, is a, a sort of a habit and a discipline that I found has been very helpful in me making sure that I'm staying on track. And especially being like a one man shop, like there's no one. I don't have a supervisor being like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We're just going to cut that feature. That's that's too much. It has to be something that I have the ability to not just get totally sucked down these rabbit holes and say, like, yes, of course, I need to do this thing because it's really interesting and really hard. Like I need to be able to say, like, will this will will my customers notice if I do this? And if they won't, like, am I just doing this for myself? And if I am, like, that's kind of sometimes fun, but that's really not a way that you're going to be able to reliably ship quality products. You're just going to end up with a lot of kind of like crazy half-built things that probably will end up making your app more complicated and harder to use for your customers in the end. Yeah, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And we all face that that dilemma because, I mean, look, we've, we're have we all geeks. We all like interesting things. We all like keeping our brains interested and, and trying new things and approaching problems in new ways or doing things in better ways than what we did in the past. It's not that you should never do that, but that there's a balance to be struck and that, that doing that has significant time costs that may not be worth it. Uh, and, and you know, doing like a major rewrite of something that already works might also introduce brand new bugs. In fact, it almost certainly would. Brand new bugs that you that you didn't have before. Then you have to go fixing that. Uh, and so it's just a balance. You need to keep yourself happy and learning and intellectually satisfied. But you also need to ship products. And, you, and it's important to find that balance. And, and that's something that I think mostly just comes with experience and, and wisdom over time. Uh, it's it's not that you can never have fun, but that you should know when to have fun and when it, and when it's no longer fun and you need to get back to work. Yeah, and I think the only the best lesson I, I've had about that is it's 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 trying to have customer focused development in that way. It's like the time to do that, the time to solve interesting problems is to find features or find apps or find ideas that solving a, a, tr- a difficult problem will make a customer's life better. And like the intersection of those two things 
of like a really interesting technical problem and a real honest need or pain point in someone's life, like that's where really interesting and fun work happens. And if you can't sort of honestly say that it's both interesting to build and useful for a customer, then you're probably not in a place that is actually worth building. All right. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Uh, please uh, tell your friends about the show. Help, help us spread the word. Recommend us an Overcast. And uh, we'll see you next week.